Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Gianna Eckhart. Gianna, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Gianna and I met on the wonderful Isle of Butte off the coast of Scotland last June, June 2022. And many of us were there, not Gianna, you were there for a different reason, I think, but many of us were there to do something called deceleration or to attempt to slow down. Now, Gianna, this is something you study. It's one of the topics you research, people's desire to slow down. Yes, I was so excited that that decelerator lab on the Isle of Butte existed because it was putting into to action what I had been studying. And I think it's a really important trend in the world today, but beyond just a trend, something that uh, really illustrates that people want to change their lifestyles. I think all of us can relate to the idea of being time poor, whether it's in our work life or our personal life, and thinking about ways in which to live, which aren't so stressful and where you don't feel time poor is becoming more and more important in people's lives. And so what does it involve like slowing down? I mean, it sounds obvious, but the world doesn't really enable a lot of slowing down. Everything is trying to get us to be faster, I think. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I think a lot of people think that slowing down is, for example, coming home from work and laying down on your sofa and watching Netflix, where you just think, ah, now I can relax and chill out and be slower. But actually, what we found in our research is that to slow down and really get the kind of mental and physical benefits that come from it, it entails three different elements. And so those elements, so the first one is embodied deceleration. So this is basically the body itself slowing down. Um, And we studied this in the context of people walking the Camino de Santiago. 
And in that context, people are walking as compared to the faster forms of transportation that we're normally used to. And this was really important in people's entire mindset slowing down. When your body slows down, your mind slows down. So engaging in activities like walking as compared to faster forms of transportation or doing yoga or things that really slow down the body are important, but it's active things that slow down the body. In other words, not just laying on the sofa, (laughs) which we all like to do at the end of a hard day of work, but it's active slowing down. So that's the first element, which is the embodied deceleration. The second is technological deceleration. And a lot of people, I think when you hear that, you think, oh, this means not using our devices, right? And of course, we hear about digital detoxes a lot, which facilitate not using devices. But what we found in our research is that it's actually feeling in control of technology and your devices rather than not necessarily getting rid of them, which enabled people to really slow down. Like I'm only going to check whatever it is, your email or your social media, like once before I go to bed at night or something like this and feeling like you really have control over when you're engaging with what via technology. That was the really important part to, to again, being able to successfully physically and mentally slow down. And then the final component of it is what we call episodic deceleration. So this is basically just engaging in less episodes of action per day. So not doing 15 different things, but rather focusing on one thing. And an element of this that we discovered was really important was also not having to make as many choices. (laughs) I think we can all relate to this feeling of if you go to prep for lunch and there's 50 different sandwiches and you have to choose one. And, you know, this is, this is the type of thing that people have to do all the time. And, and it really contributes to this feeling of, yeah, of being time poor of having to engage in too many episodes of action. So being able to just focus and also not have to engage in those types of choices constantly was the final component of being able to really slow down. Wow. I like the embodied. I love that what you say about active things that slow us down. There's something very purposeful about that as well it feels like I'm part of it it's not passive like you talked about lying on the couch for example Mm. and then I think the technological and episodic might also help one another because we have to choose in a way not to be distracted by technology so by making those choices of less actions per day so I'm only going to check my phone I I don't know before meal times or after meal times or something or I'm not going to be on email all day we're also kind of influencing the episodic there yeah that's a great point absolutely making this kind of choice an active choice in particular with the technology to reduce these episodes yeah that's absolutely right in terms of their their interaction and which of these then creates the most stress for people Gianna Mm -hmm. the technology one is the one that I feel like yes I want to do that but it's also the more addictive almost of all of those three so it feels like there's a bit more work involved in that one yeah it's interesting so it's not all about self-control which I think is what it seems like oftentimes 
people that we researched who were able to successfully do it talked about, how can I put it, limitations of the platforms that enabled them to do it. So in other words, you can set up your social media or your email or something like this. So you can't get in it except for say between five and 6 PM or, or whatever you choose. So you can set up there are these different apps and software available to help you to be able to do this. I think just relying on self-control is really a strategy that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So like constraints, putting constraints around exactly. it for yourself. Okay. Yes. And then the choice one, I always think of Steve Jobs when this kind of thing comes up, because apparently he just wore the same outfit every single day, obviously different versions of the same outfit, so that he didn't have to get up in the morning and think about what he was going to wear and that he was saving his choices for more important things. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about there. Yes, absolutely. I love that example. It's the idea that you're freeing up your headspace to really focus on something that you want to focus on, whether it's something that you want to achieve at work or whether it's spending time with a loved one and really being engaged with them rather than distracted by a thousand other things. It's it's really freeing up your headspace to focus. Okay. And so if I do these things, what what will I get? I mean, obviously, we've talked about some of them, but together, what are the benefits that will emerge? Yeah, so what we found is that um, it leads to a kind of lifestyle that is more focused around simplicity. So, and that's why I love the Steve Jobs example that you just used too, right? It's it's very simple to have the same, I think for him, it was a black turtleneck, right? And a pair of jeans, something like this, to have you know, 20 of the same black turtleneck. It's it's a life of simplicity. So so yeah, it's really simplifying your life. And so that's that's a big benefit that people talked about, which, which led to them being able to reconnect with important people in their lives, with what they loved about their job, with nature. People talked a lot about being able to reconnect with nature. So so simplicity is kind of important to do that. Dematerialization. So this is people wanting to get rid of extraneous stuff in order to facilitate, you know, having less choices, less episodes of action, et cetera, and being able to reconnect with what they wanted to. So dematerialization, and then also authenticity. People talked a lot about living living a more authentic life to, to what was important to them and to what their values were. I think a lot of what goes along with being time poor can oftentimes be, well, I'm spending all my time on all of these things that I don't necessarily want to be. And so engaging in those three types of slowing down that we talked about allow people to live what they perceive as a more authentic life to what they want to spend time on and yeah, what their values are. And It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about the simplification and the dematerialization are almost the opposite of the world we live in as well, because we're constantly feeling, I suppose, that we need to buy the latest this or that everything is complicated and we need to add more stuff in order to achieve what it is we want to achieve. And I know you study consumer behavior as well. So how will the world respond to these needs, I suppose, is the question I'm thinking about. How does the world of production or manufacturing or what will businesses do to respond to this? 
Yeah, great question. So I think, I mean, most of the innovation and value that companies provide to consumers tends to be around doing things faster and more conveniently, right? You know, we think about Amazon, which offers Amazon Prime so that everything arrives to you that you could possibly ever want or need by the next day. So it's all about kind of increasing speed, increasing convenience. But what we've noticed since we did this research, which was a few years ago now, and and also I think that this this desire for slowness has been facilitated by the pandemic when people were at home as well and kind of realized the benefits of not running around because we couldn't run around. <laughs> so I think companies are starting to, to realize that, that this is something that people are seeking out more and more. So we can see it in a lot of different areas. So for example, going away for two weeks on a yoga retreat, going to a silent meditation, going to walk the Camino de Santiago, these types of things in terms of what people People want to spend their leisure time on are really becoming much more prominent. But in addition to that, also an example that I like is in retail spaces as well. So a, a beauty company called Origins, they make different beauty products. I'm sure you know them. They engaged in an exercise to redesign their retail space so that people would sit down while they were in there, would stay longer, would relax. And the idea would be instead of trying to have an atmosphere which is conducive to buying more stuff while you're in a store, it's rather about maybe buying less, but more high value products that will really be exactly what you want. So it tends to result in more loyalty, et cetera. So these are some examples, I think, of how companies are realizing that in some cases, yes, consumers want things faster and more conveniently, but in a lot of other cases, that's not necessarily the case. And I guess it speaks to sustainability as well, doesn't it, in the world, especially when it comes to like things like clothes, for example, there is a push to buy secondhand or reused or buy better that lasts longer. So can this influence that market also? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely a strong slow fashion movement in comparison to fast fashion, which is exactly about this, which is about getting something and keeping it for a long time. That That's the slow behind the slow fashion and, and having craftsmen and artisans make it so you don't get a trend one week after it's shown on the runway, which is what you do get with fast fashion like Zara and H&M, but rather more timeless things that are made by craftspeople that are going to be kept a long time. Time. And so that's all part of the circular fashion movement as well, because even if an individual, say, maybe doesn't fit into a piece of clothing any longer, that piece of clothing doesn't necessarily have to go into the recycling bin. There's lots of clothing swaps, for example. I went to one, the, the Hackney Council in London put on, and it was sold out with over a thousand people there. And for every piece of clothing you bring, you get a ticket, and then for a ticket, you can pick up something else. And so it's a way to keep these fashion items in circulation and for people to get something new, but not necessarily have something new be produced. So all of this is part of the slow fashion movement that's becoming so much more prominent. And what about in our workplaces, Gianna? I actually have a post-it on my desk, believe it or not, that says slow down to speed up. So there has to be an element of this that influences our philosophy of work or how we enable better work or in working environments? Yeah, I think that 
In the marketplace, we can see this manifesting much more so far than in the workplace. So we've talked about a bunch of examples already in the marketplace. In the workplace, I think companies are starting to realize this, but they're not exactly sure what to do in order to facilitate that. And that's why I was so intrigued by the decelerator lab on the Isle of Butte that we both attended. So Gib, the founder, his vision is that companies will send teams of workers to go there to learn these different ways of slowing down. And the idea behind what Gib is trying to do at the decelerator lab is that in turn, these teams would then be more creative. They would have more creative solutions to kind of the big issues rather than always getting bogged down and, you know, answering emails and the small things that take up so much time. So I think companies are starting to realize that they need to carve out time for this and and to help employees be able to do this and to be able to see the benefits of it. But that's more at a nascent stage, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And I was facilitating a workshop recently and they were talking about the need for deep work which I think in effect is that it's it's clearing that time so people can focus on the one thing not have the technological input perhaps but I think there's also that element of the embodied deceleration like we have to feel calm and composed to do deep work too. Absolutely. And that's why taking a walk in nature, for example, during your lunch break, where you're actively slowing your body down, you're reconnecting with nature, even something like that can really help you to engage in the deep work, as you said. Obviously, we can't all go and walk the Camino to bring this (laughs) into our daily lives, much and all as I would recommend it to anyone. And I know you've done it, Gianna, and I have also. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your experience of walking the Camino? Sure. So I've walked parts of the Portuguese route as well as parts of the French route. And it was an amazing experience for me. I was walking it to do research, but also you can't help but experience the benefits yourself. The communion, I think, between people who are doing this together was something that I found to be really special and how people open up to each other. And this was something as part of the technological deceleration that I was talking about before is having face-to-face communication. And this is what a lot of people on the Camino that I was walking with were really reflecting on, that this was a time that they were able to, whether it was chatting to someone while they were walking or in the evening at the albergue having dinner with with other pilgrims, was how much they were able to get in touch with their feelings and have deeper conversations than typically the technologically mediated type of communication that one would normally have. So that face-to-face communication and what people were willing to share with strangers, I thought that was really really amazing. And the the other thing I would highlight is the element of pain that goes along with with walking the Camino. And we actually talk about this in the embodied deceleration part of our research as well, which is that sometimes you're forced to slow down because, and yeah, this is certainly true in the Camino, because you're in pain. I don't think I met one person who didn't get blisters while they were walking. But so I think when you're walking about 20K a day or or whatever it is, it's impossible not to get blisters. 
sisters after a week or so. So everyone kind of sharing this experience of, of being in pain, but also it forces you to focus on your body and that this can be yeah a really powerful way to slow down. So that was something that stood out as well. Yeah, I mean, I can totally relate to the pain <laughs> one. And I actually met people on the Camino that had heard of me because my blisters were really bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they were like, oh, my God, you're that Irish lady with the really bad blisters. I was like, yeah, that's me. It's funny what you say there reminded me of I I walked a lot of it alone. And I would bump into people who had never met each other until they began the Camino. And then they would walk together for weeks, which I also found phenomenal. And they could be different ages, sexes, everything. But I met this American woman and she was walking with a Belgian man. And they had just met at the beginning of their Camino journey. And I met them one day when I was really low on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> And I was saying how I, I was really being forced to slow down and to walk less than I wanted to. And I remember the woman saying to me, Susan, did you ever consider that maybe you need to slow down? Mm. That really struck me because there's also an element of I, I found when I started the Camino, almost being forced and I was putting the pressure on myself but to reach the stage that the book said every time and until I let go of the power of the book over me <laughs> and walk my own stages that varied and suited my feet I was still not decelerating Right. I, I like that anecdote because it highlights that deceleration is a process and so at the beginning, you were figuring out, right, how, and I think on something like the Camino, but I think travel in general, we think about, oh, before we go, we have to know where we're going to stay every night, we have to book our accommodation, we don't want to end up, you know, sleeping outside or whatever, and then, and then to learn how to lose all that. And to just say, well, I'm only going to walk exactly what's good for my feet and for me. And I'll find a place to stay, even if it's not where the book says you should be. So I can't take their recommendation, but I'll find a place to stay. And it's a process to get to that point. It really is. And the other thing I found is it just brought me back to basics very much. You know, all I cared about was my feet, what I was going to eat and where I was going to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're describing exactly episodic deceleration, right? You don't have all of the 30 other things that we normally have throughout our days that, yeah, it's just eating, sleeping and our pain. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly the episodic deceleration. Yeah. So again, I would absolutely recommend that to anyone. And you can do it in stages as well. You don't have to do four weeks in one go. One of the things that I came across, Gianna, when I was doing my research for this episode was the concept of digital consumer spirituality. And that's a phrase I had not encountered before. So maybe you could talk a little bit to that. 
Sure. So when I did the Camino research, a lot of the output from that project ended up focusing on the deceleration, which is what we're talking about today. But one of the things that I was quite interested in, which prompted that whole research project, was exactly consumer spirituality. So in other words, why is doing things like walking the Camino becoming so much more popular? Are people becoming more Catholic? Because it is a Catholic pilgrimage. And really, the answer to that is no. (laughs) But people want to consume something, engage in something that is spiritual and spiritual in their own way. Everyone tends to define that differently. And so I became quite interested in the rise of this and what are people searching for as they engage in these different spiritual activities. And in the process of researching this outside of the context of the Camino as well, um, realized that a lot of modern day spirituality is digitally mediated. So what I mean by that is that people are engaging in, say, Buddhist activities like meditation through their apps. You can have an app that will take you on a guided meditation for however long you want to devote to it per day. Um, In Japan, in a lot of Buddhist temples, there are robot monks so when you go, yeah, you, you interact. There are also some human monks, but you interact with robot monks. And it just started this process of thinking like, well, how do these spiritual practices that are mediated by these different digital, whether it's an app or a robot or whatever, how does that change the experience of spirituality? So that's what that term refers to. And that's what I'm interested in. Wow. It's kind of like it's it's almost scary that we're automating things like that but i can't knock it until i know more about it i suppose Yeah, no, it's really interesting when you start looking at all the different practices that exist, and especially again, during the pandemic, when people couldn't go to churches or meet up with their groups, a lot of things did switch to being online. And so, so yeah, there's so many different avenues to explore of this digital spirituality that people are seeking out. I think it would be fascinating to really do a study that, for example, looks at specifically, how does the experience of going to a temple differ when you interact with a robot compared to a human monk and so I hope that that research is going to be done soon I just I got like the image I have in my head right now is just <laughs> bizarre <laughs> <laughs> so we touched on slow fashion earlier Gianna and and I guess there's the slow food movement as well and there's a lot of other things in that area but It's kind of ethical consumer behavior, I suppose, we're also thinking about. How can I be ethical with my choices? And what drives that ethical consumer behavior? Yeah, so I have a book. It's about 10 years old now, but I think the insights in it are still relevant. But the title is called The Myth of the Ethical Consumer. And we we chose that title deliberately to be provocative. But the reason why, so there are a lot of people who want to and do engage in ethical consumption, but I don't really think there's an ethical consumer. And what I mean by that is that I think a lot of people think, oh, if people just knew that fast fashion was made in factories that have really terrible conditions and that exploit their workers, or if people just knew the carbon footprint that that was behind what's being produced, then that would enact their values and what they buy. And the reality is that doesn't happen. 
I mean, most of us are aware, for example, that a lot of the elements that are used in a smartphone are being taken from, from countries in ways that aren't good for the environment or the locals there. But how many people are giving up their smartphones? <laughs> not many. And yeah, almost no one. So it's not just about making people aware of what's happening, but rather what drives people to actually engage in ethical consumption is typically more social factors. So I mentioned before that there was this clothing swap in Hackney and a thousand people came and it was very well attended and it was amazing, but it was very very social. People came in groups of friends. They had organized to, oh, let's go to this. It's going to be really fun. And we'll go together and then we'll grab a drink afterwards. And so it's typically more these, when you can engage in activities that have this social component, what, what are my friends doing? What brands are they buying? For example, renting clothes rather than buying them. When different celebrities started doing this and posting it on Instagram that they were wearing a rented dress, then it brought cachet. So someone said, oh, well, if I do it, I can post on Instagram and people are going to be like, wow, she's really at the forefront of this new way of consuming, but it's bringing that social cachet. So those are the components that really drive behavior in this space rather than, for example, educating people, as I mentioned, about what's going on. Yeah, and all I can think of it is climate change, because we clearly still haven't got that right. <laughs> and all the education and awareness hasn't made a lot of us change our behavior. And we set then standards for people to achieve or maintain. But is there still a missing link? Yeah, as I said, I think that the missing link is kind of understanding that it's a lot of these other variables, not necessarily people's beliefs. Like if you asked anyone, do you think that we should be reducing our carbon footprint? Most people would say yes. But then when they're in the grocery store and you have two kids who are crying and you just want to get out of there quickly and something, one thing's on sale and the other thing isn't. And there are a lot of other factors that outweigh this sort of abstract belief that, oh, I need to be doing something about climate change in the moment when you're buying something. There's actually a big role for legislation in this area, in my view. An example that I'd like to use is recycling. When people started recycling, it was typically because you would get fined if you didn't. That's no longer the case because recycling has become a social norm now. And there's different bins everywhere for the different things. And I think if someone didn't recycle, typically others would perhaps look askance at them. And so it's become embedded into the way that we behave now. But at the beginning, it was a big change. People were used to just putting everything into the same bag and that was it. And so in order to get people to shift at this sort of mass level, not just like a little niche group of people, but to get the entire society to shift the way that they do this, it was typically something that was legislated. I remember at my house that there was like a $50 fine if you didn't put your things in the right bins when they came to collect it. And this was giving a lever in order to actually shift people's behavior. And it worked really effectively. So I think that there's room for this. There's room for different types of levers rather than just saying, oh, people need to become aware and start changing. That's unrealistic to think that's going to happen. And as you mentioned, Susan, it hasn't happened in the past sort of 20 years when we've been aware of this. So I think different levers are needed. As you were speaking there as well about legislation, like part of the power of the legislation is helping with this episodic deceleration, because I don't have to think about it then. I just have to do it. 
it's not my decision it's been made for me and I just have to comply absolutely you're 100% and you're not thinking like, well, but what are other people going to think about me if I do this? And all of these other considerations, it's just like, I have to do this. I have to comply. Absolutely. Wow. We have a long way to go, I think. <laughs> and the problem in the world, I suppose, is we do have so many competing priorities as well. And you can open the news at any time. And there are so many things demanding our attention that could be done better. And perhaps that's part of the problem as well as we've got too many choices of where to focus our efforts. Yeah, that's one of the points that we make in the book, The Myth of the Ethical Consumer, which is that at most, are people actually going to consume in line with their values? And at most, it would be within one particular area. So some people maybe feel very strongly about animals and someone else about climate change. But to think that everyone is going to be doing that in all of these competing domains is entirely unrealistic. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you have another book coming out, Gianna. Yes, that'll be coming out in 2024. And I'm in the process of writing it now. So it's definitely a top of mind. The title is In Praise of Inconvenience, which again, I think we're trying to be provocative with the title, but but it's really fun to write because it relates to a lot of what we've been talking about today, which is that there's this assumption that doing everything in the more convenient way is kind of better and that progress is marked by making things ever more and more convenient, but actually kind of say, well, actually there's a lot of benefit and in inconvenience. And we address this from a different perspective in each chapter. So one chapter, for example, is about city planning. So when cities are less convenient, you actually get more exercise from walking around. And so you see lower obesity levels, for example. So it has these positive public health benefits, but you also see people making connections with others in the community because you're forced to walk rather than having other forms of transportation or whatever around. So there's these community level benefits. And then in one chapter, we talk about, for example, why is a lot of analog technology returning? People are listening to music on vinyl records, which is the fastest growing format for music listening now and taking photos on film again. And why is this the case? And actually people get a lot more meaning. So people talk about, oh, well, if I just take photos on my phone, I just have thousands on there. I never look at them and they become kind of meaningless. But if I take a photo with film that I have to later develop, I take the time to really make sure to, to plan out the photo, make sure it's a memory that I want to have. I'll print it out afterwards. So it brings a lot of meaning. And the same with listening to music on vinyl, that you have to engage, you have to put the record on the turntable, you have to flip it over halfway through, you really engage with the music, whereas just playing something from Spotify on your phone oftentimes becomes background music. So people talk a lot about how they're able to re-engage and reignite their love of music. But if you think about it, these technologies are less convenient, right? To play a record like that, to take a photo using film, it's much less convenient, but it brings a lot more meaning and joy to people's lives. So these are the types of things that we're talking about in the book. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> it really does. And I love the title In Praise of Inconvenience, and I'm sure it is going to raise some eyebrows. <laughs> and maybe the other thing, we've talked a little bit about travel, and I guess travel can be an inconvenience as well, because we're going to explore a country where we mightn't have the language. It forces us to 
behave differently than we would in our own backyard and so on. And I know that you're a big promoter of travel in life as well, Gianna. So what is travel to you and what would you recommend to people about travel? Mm, very, very interesting question and something I've been reflecting on, especially in this age of is it right to, to, to engage in flying in an airplane from an environmental standpoint. But for me, travel has been really integral to shaping who I am. When I did my PhD, which was 20 years ago now, <laughs> I did all of my PhD research in China. And that experience of kind of being living somewhere that was so foreign for a long period of time, not just going somewhere for a week and enjoying it as a tourist, which I also like to do as well, but to really experience another country and culture like that really has shaped the way that I think. It changed the way that I think a lot. And it also made me a lot more empathetic and less judgmental because you kind of realize, oh, when people are doing things that are different from me, it's not that the way that they're doing Doing it is wrong and the way that I'm doing it is right. It's embedded in a cultural context, which I didn't understand before, but now I do. And so I really think it's so important for us in terms of understanding people who are quite different from us. And so I am a huge proponent of travel. But as I said, in the past 10 years or so, there's been this big debate about, well, should people even be traveling to places that are far away from them? Because it does have a large carbon footprint. But I'm really think that the slow travel movement is something that's quite interesting. So it's the idea that the benefits that, that we're talking about are still relevant and even perhaps more relevant in this age of like the wars, the, the war we're seeing now in the Ukraine, et cetera, to really understand other cultures and contexts from ours, but doing so maybe in a way that is, well, first of all, is slower. So, so that we've been talking about all the benefits of slowing down. So there's that as well as being more environmentally friendly. So we've seen the rise of train travel, for example, as compared to flying, the rise of people going back to taking boats <laughs> when they go to, to different continents. And I think that that's really uh, a wonderful movement and something that I'm trying to explore more myself. Not only because, like I said, it's better for the environment, but because you do get more benefits, I think, from the slowing down element of it. So so yeah, that, that gives me hope that <laughs> we're not all just going to be staying within our own bubbles, that we'll still be able to continue travel while being environmentally friendly. Yes. And as you're talking, we talked about slow fashion, slow food, slow travel. And all I can think about is slow work. I really hope that we can embed this back into workplaces as well, where people spend time on relationships, on that social aspect and deepening their connections with one another. And I, I do believe that would result in greater contributions of people's work. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely. And you have some influence as you teach, don't you, as well as a professor? Absolutely. I find that this really resonates with students and it resonates with, to get to your point about work, with how they want to work. So I think as the new generation moves up to being in positions of power within their organizations, hopefully we'll see some, some transformations in work in the way that we have in the other arenas we've discussed today. Yeah, brilliant. Gianna, thank you so much. That was such a fascinating trip through so many different things. And 
Well, if somebody wants to know more about you and your research, what is the best way of connecting with you? LinkedIn is a great way of connecting with me that, yeah, I'm easily findable there. And I would love to connect with with people who have questions or want to discuss anything in this area. And thanks so much for having me today, Susan. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you for your time, Gianna. And it's bank holiday weekend coming up here in the UK. I hope you're going to be able to slow down. I shall be indeed. (laughs) All right. And with that, thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.